Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, So tonight, because Pastor Jason is gone, we're going to take a little break from our walk through the Psalms and actually be looking at 2 Kings 5 together. Um, So we'll be looking at verses 1 through uh, the first part of verse 19, and I'll be reading out of the uh, ESV tonight, Um, but it should track right along with the uh, King James Version, if that's what you're reading out of as well. So, um, tonight as we look at 2 Kings 5, I have a small confession to make. So, um, when we go to camp, we do a lot of interstate driving. And anybody that has driven any interstate, particularly in North Carolina, knows that most of them are perpetually under construction. There are stretches of road that I know deep in my bones from my entire life, from a child until now, have always have orange cones on them. They will never be completed. It's just a big joke by the DOT that someday there'll be extra lanes on this road, right? Now, when you drive on these roads and you have the cones and you have the barrels and all that kind of stuff, sometimes you come upon stretches where it was two lanes or three lanes and they want you to merge down to one lane, right? Now, when I drive and I see the lighted signs that say right lane ends in five miles or right lane ends in three miles or those kind of things, I'm one of those drivers that goes ahead and gets over because I'm like, the right lane's gonna end, like it's going to end, so I need to go ahead and get in the left-hand lane. There are others perhaps even amongst this group, that feel like that's more of a challenge, like you're at Talladega or something, and you're like, okay, right lane's going to end in five miles. That means I've got 4.75 miles to pass as many people as I can, right? So you go into like, I'm going to start trading paint here. This is good, right? Rubbing is racing, like days of thunders going through your head. And, you know, I, I just want you to know that I get a little frustrated when I see people do that because I get over in the lane like the sign says because the sign said it, so we got to get in the lane. And I'm going down, and everybody's starting to merge over, and then all of a sudden we're going at speed, and then we're not going at speed. Like we're sort of doing this number jerking back and forth and those kind of things. And it's because people are coming down against the sign and then whipping it over right there in the last quarter mile, Right? Some people have argued with me that's how traffic's supposed to work. In my heart of hearts, I think they need repentance. But when you experience that and you see people, you know, just zipping past you while you're doing the stop and go thing and they're getting in, there's a few times where I've seen that and I start thinking in my head like, okay, that one's not getting in. Like if they're down there, right? I had a relative one time and his favorite phrase was, put them in the grass, put them in the grass. So, you know, it's like in your head, you're like, wouldn't it be awesome if I could like box them out and just, you know, have them whip the weeds just for a second and kind of learn them that you're supposed to go over when the sign goes, 
run them, you know, just graze a barrel, not like actually hit a barrel, but kind of graze it a little bit. So when you do that and you're thinking about it in that, that in your head, you think that might change something or that might make things better. But what is actually going to happen if you put somebody in the grass or if you make them get a little close for comfort to a barrel like that? Well, if there's one of the blue light guys around, they're going to say, hey, um, that's not how you learned how to drive in North Carolina. We need to have a talk. Or you're actually going to make traffic worse because now you've got people, you know, doing the Talladega thing and we're drafting, right? So in your head, you're like, this is sweet revenge. But in reality, it's not helped your situation. It's only made it worse, right? So I know y'all are thinking in your head, how's he going to make this relate? But we're going to go to 2 Kings 5 and we're going to find that out. Um, so when we think about that and we keep that in mind, we look at this story here in 2 Kings 5 that has to do with a guy named Naaman. So first, what I want you all to see with me, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and look at an impossible need. Uh, an impossible need here in 1 through 7. So uh, read along with me. Uh, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man. With his master, he had high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. At the beginning of the passage, we're introduced to this guy named Naaman. And he's one of these great commanders of Syria. And he's a favorite of his Syrian king. And he's rich, and he's powerful, and he has prestige. But he's got a big problem. Because for all that, he's still got leprosy. Because even though he has all that, he's not immune to getting a skin disease, right? And when we look at leprosy, it's a skin disease that's mentioned specifically in the Bible um, because it is so grotesque and so horrible to have. It's something that's incurable. It's something that is mentioned in the book of Leviticus as a reason why people are actually separated from the community when it comes to Israel. In the pagan kingdoms, they didn't do that a lot, but God is very serious about the purity of the people, so he wants the disease taken away, right? Because it's also something that can be communicated to other people. And it's so insidious because once you have leprosy, it's incurable, but it actually causes the body to rot. And you begin to lose feeling in the extremities, and then pieces of you start to fall off. So it's grotesque, it's disfiguring, it's something that cannot be undone. It's a hopeless condition, and only God can relieve somebody of it. So in Israel, they actually look at it in the same terms that they would think of sin, right? So we're introduced to this guy named Naaman, and he's rich, and he's powerful, and he's a favorite of the king, but he's got this big problem that he can't do anything about. And then we're introduced to a little girl, and we're told that she's involved in the story because she was taken in a Syrian raid on the kingdom of Israel. 
And she witnessed the cruelty of the Syrian army under Naaman and what they did to her people. She still relives the trauma of being ripped from her household and from her people and from her land at the hands of the Syrian army. And now she's been condemned to a life of servitude in the house of the commander that had caused her all this pain. And by the world's standards, she would be right to see what's going on with Naaman and say, that's it, that's justice, you're getting what you deserve, right? In some sense, she can see that as justice because he's being repaid for the personal pain that he's given to her. He's ruined her life and she would be right by the world's standards to say, let him rot because he deserves it. But we see this little girl choosing to reject revenge. Instead of indulging in the type of revenge that the world would say she was entitled to, she instead chooses to show love to this man who has caused her so much pain. And she mentions to her mistress that even though there's no hope here, there is hope in Israel. She chooses to show love to somebody who showed her pain. And when we think about this concept of loving our enemies, we think about a little girl like this who's been through so much, and we think about all the stories around us of people who have been through so much. You know, people cause other people pain because we live in a broken and sinful world. And in my story, I've dealt with um, betrayal from people that I trusted in a professional sense. And because of what they did to me, it caused a lot of personal pain and it caused a lot of professional pain. And it put me in a position where I had to forgive people who had wrongly committed those things towards me. So like this little girl, I had a choice and I could choose revenge or I could choose to love them. And thankfully, by God's grace in my life, I was able to choose to love them. And it brought about some healing in some ways that would not have been had I chose to just simply slam them. You see, in many of our stories, we, we deal with pain from people that we would have trusted. And when we're faced with the choice of whether to forgive or whether to seek revenge, it's important for us as believers to remember that the forgiveness we show others when they wrongly cause us pain is a reflection of the forgiveness that we receive through Jesus when we wrongly caused him pain, when he died on the cross for our sins, right? But not only that, we can reflect God's love to others but we can also trust in the fact that God is a righteous judge. God gets to define what justice is. And in his word, he promises us that at the end of time, when he comes back, all things will be set right. So because we trust in the king who saved us and because he has the power to do so, and because he gets to define what justice is, we can trust in that righteous judge. And because of that, we can let go. So when we're faced with that choice of forgiveness or revenge, we can let go of things that the world would say, no, you've got to hang on to that. And you've got to let that motivate you because they did you wrong and at some point you're going to get to slam them. But instead, we get to trust in the righteous judge that tells us, leave the vengeance in my hands. And when we do that, that is so countercultural, 
And that is such a witness to what Christ has done in us that it becomes such a powerful beacon that it'll draw others to ask questions like, hey, we saw what they did to you. How can you forgive them after that? Particularly if you've got power to do something about it and you can point them right to Christ and say, here's what I could have done, but because Christ showed me forgiveness when I didn't deserve it, I get to forgive them. And there's a hope that's only found in Christ that we are able to reflect when we don't choose vengeance like this little girl. She seems like a minor character in the story, but God is showing that she is experiencing pain based off things that she didn't control, right? Because ultimately, her nation's being judged because corporately they've decided to reject what God told them to do. But now she's going to use that as a bridge to bring people towards God, the one true God in Israel, as opposed to taking her revenge. So we have Naaman and we have this little girl and Naaman leaves with this letter to the king of Israel. And as we read on in verses 8 through 14, we see what happens. So let's back up to verse 7 just a second. So in verse 7, the king receives the letter um, from the king of Syria on Naaman's behalf, and he gets terrified. So in verse 7, he says, When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? This man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy. Only consider how, he's, how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel sees this powerful neighbor send one of his favorite generals to him with a letter that says, hey, this little girl said there's healing in Israel. Now you've got to heal my guy of leprosy. And the king of Israel sees it as a pretext. He says, this is it. It's a trap. He sent me this letter. He sent me a guy that I can't do anything about so that when I fail, he can use this as a pretext to cause a confrontation. And there's going to have to be war. And he actually laments what's going on and tears his clothes. But reading on in 8 through 14, we see that there is hope. And it's not going to come through the earthly king, but it's going to come through somebody else. So reading on in verse 8, he says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So when he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. So like I said, the 
king of Israel receives this letter. He sees it as a pretext for an invasion. And Elijah hears what's going on and he comforts the king by saying, this is not about you. Go ahead and send Naaman to me because it's about the prophet who's in Israel because the Lord's going to do something here. So Naaman and his whole entourage and all the money and all the wealth that he's brought with him to pay for this miracle show up at Elijah's doorstep and Elijah doesn't even come out of the house. He sends a servant outside to Naaman and says, yeah, God says go wash seven times in the Jordan. And Naaman gets really mad because he's a great man, right? He's prideful. He's got prestige. He's brought a bunch of wealth here and the prophet can't even come out of his house to come say what he's supposed to do. And then on top of that, he tells him to go in the Jordan and wash seven times. And to him, this is basically a mud hole. It would kind of be like if somebody came here and said, hey, I need to be cleansed of my skin disease. And we were like, yeah, go over to the Lumber River and dip yourself seven times in one of those swamps over there. They're going to be like, why do I need to go dip in the swamp? I got White Lake down there. Like, why do I need to come out here to where, you know, the bullfrogs play? So this is very demeaning for him because he's like, why do I need to go down to the Jordan, this mud hole, and wash seven times when I've got great rivers back home? Why can't that be the one that I need to wash in? But his servants recognize what's going on and they begin to plead with him to relent and do what Elisha told him because they show him what's going on in the situation. He's like, you've tried everything Naaman. And now God is telling you, go to the river you don't want to go in and dip seven times. Like, how easy is that? Can you just follow that? This is true hope that you've been given. See, because he had wealth and he had pride and he had prestige, but none of that could save him. The only thing that could save him was obedience to the God who was in Israel that the little girl had pointed him to. What his prophet had said. And his servants essentially look at him and say, what have you got to lose? We're already here. Why not just go ahead and do it? So he goes back to the Jordan. When he goes to the Jordan and he dips that seventh time, he miraculously comes out and his skin disease is gone. And not only that, it's rejuvenated to the point where he's a young man again. There's no scarring. There's no leftovers of what has happened. He's completely restored. It's an act that only God can do. He came to receive healing from the Lord. And God gave it to him, but only on his terms. He had to come with a desperate heart. And the Lord delivered him from this impossible curse. All because of the love that was shown to him by a prisoner of war that was working in his house. And some would say, wow, that's a great story. But it gets better. So we're going to finish up here and go 15 through 19 and see what happens and what kind of ultimate purposes might be behind all this. So starting at verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. And he tries to give him all the silver and the gold and the changes of clothes that he's brought with him. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none of this. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. And then Naaman said, 
Well, if you won't take that, will you please let me take uh, two, mule lo- uh, two mule loads of earth along with me as I go home? For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Remen to worship there, he has to lean on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Remen. When I bow myself in that house, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elijah said, go in peace to him. So Naaman, as the world says, had brought a lot of wealth to pay for this miracle. He heard there was a prophet in Israel. He assumed he would have to pay for things, and he brought this huge gift. And when he tries to give it, Elijah won't accept it. See, he had experienced God's miracle of external healing, but we see in Naaman's words here that something deeper had gone on. Not only has his skin been cleaned, but he's been cleaned from the inside out. Because now, because of God's power and because of the way he interacted with Elisha, he knows that there is no other God than the God who is in Israel. The skin disease was horrible, but his outward illness for Naaman only pointed to something much deeper. See, he wasn't, already, or he wasn't just sick on the outside. He was desperately sick on the inside, too. But in verse 15... We see the evidence of this healing from the inside out because he testifies about who God is and that there's only the one God in Israel. Much like Naaman in our own day, when we have problems like this, the world offers us idols. They offer us solutions that ultimately won't affect the things that are going on deeper inside of us. The world tells us if we had this or if we could be in that relationship, or if we could accumulate, accumulate these things, we would be able to cure all that ails us. But at best, they only cover some of the symptoms externally. And at worst, they lead to nothing but death and pain. Because only true healing comes from the inside out, and that only comes from the God that we read about here in Israel. Elijah bears witness that the hope and the healing that comes from our God can't be paid for. It can't be earned because he doesn't accept the gifts from Naaman. Instead, he says it's for free and it's on God's terms. And he gives all the glory to God instead. See, Naaman's life has changed and this is evidenced by his response. Because Naaman requests that he takes dirt from where he's been. Because in that way, when they were thinking about gods, gods were sort of a territorial thing. So the idea in their mind was that if you conquered another place, that meant your gods were stronger. So he wants to take dirt from where he is because he realizes, I've finally interacted with the only God that has any power. And I want to take his dirt home so that when I worship, I get to worship on his terms in his land. So he takes the dirt home so that he can be a witness that there's no other God than the God in Israel. And he goes to Elijah and he says, I've got a duty to fulfill, but please tell the Lord that when I do that, I am not worshiping what my master is worshiping. I am worshiping him alone, but I have a duty to hold his arm and make sure he doesn't fall over when he's doing it. 
So he fulfills his duty, but he is true to the one God of Israel. See, Naaman is healed and he's brought into right relationship with his creator, not only for his own good, but also for God's glory. Because from the very beginning of the passage, we see that God is weaving his finger all through Naaman's story. Because way back at the very beginning, when it talks about what a great military commander he is, it mentions that he's only given victory because the Lord allows it. So the Lord is in control of not only what happens in Israel, not only what happens in Judah, but what happens in the rest of the world. And he can use the choices of other people to work his ends to fruition. It's like Pastor Jason says, sometimes we look at the world and it seems like the world's falling apart. But to God's eyes, it's not falling apart, it's all falling into place for his purposes and his timing. So God had interacted with Naaman long before Naaman came to him for healing because he knew there was a deeper need in Naaman's life. The only reason he had power and prestige was because it was a gift from God. And God had placed that little girl in his household to be able to point him to the fact that the God of Israel was the only true God and that God could then do this mighty act in his life. And because of that mighty act, it serves as a beacon in the midst of a pagan nation because now he gets to go back to Syria as a living testimony of the power of the God of Israel and say, yeah, all the gods we used to worship, I don't worship them. I only worship the God in Israel because y'all saw me and I was rotting on the outside and I came back and I was rejuvenated to much younger than I left. They can see tangibly that God did something in his life. And he can testify to what he did internally. See, when God created Israel as a nation, it was meant to be a national beacon. It was supposed to look different and be different and operate different in such a way that the rest of the world would look at Israel and say, there's a true God there. And we need to do things their way. They know a God that we don't know. And that he could bring all humanity back into relationship with him. But as we read in the rest of Kings and the rest of Samuel and the rest of the life of those kingdoms, they fail because they don't follow what God had told them. And instead of being different and drawing other people to God, they end up becoming like the kingdoms that are around them. So God still works and moves through them, but it's not the way he intended them to operate. And when they fail... God continues to work in lives like Naaman. Naaman should have been drawn to the kingdom of Israel because they acted differently. And when they didn't, God intervened in his life as a witness to the other nations. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus specifically mentions Naaman's story and another widow's story that takes place in Kings as a witness against his own people when he talks about in that day because you didn't believe the miracles were done to Naaman and they were done to this foreign widow and it bore witness against the fact that you weren't living up to what God had called you to do but God had called them to lead humanity back into right relationship with him and like we talked about before the salvation that Naaman found can't be bought and it can't be earned it can only be accepted through faith It's a free gift that you have to trust 
Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it only comes through faith in Him and repentance of sin. So you have to take your hope and trust from sin and you've got to place it in Jesus. You've got to turn from everything you thought brought you hope and you've got to turn to the only one who can give you hope in Jesus. And tonight as we talk about that, there might be somebody here that hasn't made that choice. But I guarantee we all know people who haven't made that choice. And that's the most important choice we could ever make. So if you have questions about that, please come talk to one of us. If you've got questions about how I share with family members, how I share with coworkers, how I share with neighbors, please come talk to us. Because just as God designed Israel to bring people to a point where they could meet the God that created them, God has scattered us in the communities to be able to share who he is with people who desperately need the hope. And if they don't have the same outside problems that Naaman had, they definitely have the same inside problems. And Jesus is the only answer for that. But also as we talk about personal relationship with Christ and we talk about um, the witness of this little girl to us, there may be things going on in your heart as well when you think about people that have wronged you or um, pain that you've experienced and maybe you've been holding on a little bit to some of those things. You're still, you're still making that decision between revenge and forgiveness. I would commend to you the witness of this little girl that in those moments we can choose forgiveness not because or we can choose forgiveness because we trust in a God who is a God of justice and a God who will make all things right. And we can choose forgiveness because we've been forgiven and we can choose forgiveness because it serves as a light to those that don't already have hope. So we're going to close now in a time of worship. Uh, Pastor Tommy's going to come lead us in a couple of songs to finish up. And as we're doing that, pray over these things that God tells us through the story of Naaman. Ask God to search your heart. And if there's things that you need to do business with him about, I ask that you don't leave this place until you do that.